Welcome to another episode of Records Revisited, a podcast dedicated to the magic of music. I'm your DJ, your MC, the host on the East Coast. I'm Ben Montgomery. Joining me is the man who says that it sounds so real that he can hear it, but he wants to know, why can't I touch it? Here's my co-host from the left coast, Wayne Fugate. Hola, Ben. I mean. So for this episode, we have a special guest who is a member of the the band, the Buzzcocks, for a number of years. He's also been in a bunch of other bands, and I'm sure we're going to talk about some of those on this episode. So please welcome to the podcast, Tony Barber. How you doing? All right. We're doing well. We're doing well. So premise of our podcast is fairly simple. We talk about music, but as we do at the beginning of each podcast, I ask the all-important question, what t-shirt are you wearing? Let's start with Wayne. What t-shirt are you wearing? I'm wearing uh, a T-shirt for the Boss DS1, the analog distortion pedal that is is a big part of punk rock and all rock and roll, really. All right, perfect. Tony, how about you? You wearing a T-shirt? I'm not wearing a T-shirt. I'm wearing a kind of a very hippie-looking silk shirt that I bought from an Indian shop in new york and the reason why i'm wearing it is because it's very comfortable to play drums and stuff in when i'm fighting around in my studio all right perfect and i'm wearing uh i'm wearing my clash london calling t-shirt <laughs> so i figured i figured i would i would wear it con- considering that uh the the album that we're going to talk about they kind of call out the clash and so i'm I'm uh, I'm sticking up for for the clash. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> there you go. So so Tony, how are you holding up? Considering uh, our uh, I, I don't I don't leave the house anyway, so the isolation stuff's easy for me. <laughs> <laughs> now you're you're in New York, correct? I am indeed. I mean, I'm in rain, rainy Queens today. Gotcha. Born and raised in the UK, right? What what part? What part? Uh, I was born in Tottenham, and uh, and I lived uh, I lived in a pl- pl- uh, place next to Tottenham called Edmonton. I lived there my whole life till I was forty. Um, n- never moved out of there. All my family's from there. Everyone, you know, everyone lived there. I had loads of relatives all over the place. So it was like very, very sort of villagey to me. You know what I mean? I loved it there. So what brought you to New York then? Uh, well, about 20 years ago, I uh, met someone and um, just it sort of ended up, I, I ended up coming over. It was a slow move because I was always on tour and working and stuff. So, you know, in order to kind of live here rather than just be visiting on a visa, you know, I had to get married in the end to make it kind of work. And, and it just took years and years and years to find a sort of gap because obviously once you start applying you can't leave the country so Uh, it was a kind of uh it was just a a case of finding the right time but now i'm here everything's over here and and that's here they can't get rid of me now (laughs) (laughs) perfect so i looked at your your uh wikipedia page and was looking at by the way you, I know that's the, whenever I bring up the Wikipedia page for for people, they're like, I don't know if any of it's right or wrong. So well, that's you why can, you you can normally tell when someone's done their own Wikipedia page because it's so over the top, and you can always tell when someone hasn't done their own Wikipedia page because normally the person's got I don't know acquired a middle name or they've got the wrong name for their real 
my date of birth was wrong on it and all kinds of stuff. I didn't, I don't even know how it showed up there and loads of the stuff was wrong. All the info was wrong anyway. But anyway. I, I think somebody lifted it off of the allmusic.com page. Yeah. That, yeah. What that reliable source. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so um, I couldn't find any, any sound clips from some of the the previous bands before you joined the Buzzcock? So it said that you were in Lack of Knowledge and Boy Boys Wonder mm-hmm. um, for for I guess the uh, early early eighties uh, through the through the late eighties. When did you join the Buzzcocks? Uh, nineteen ninety two. The, the just the, the beginning of the summer, nineteen ninety two. So that was the reformed Buzzcocks at that point. Formed in about '89, and uh, they did a couple of world tours, and then for one reason or another, um, they were looking for somebody. I wasn't initially going to do it, but um, I, I was actually working at the time for uh, Southern Studios in North London, and a friend, very good friend of mine, uh, called me up who, who worked in an industry. She called me up. She said, "Oh, the Buzzcocks are for bass player. You should do it. You love them." And I was like, nah, no, I'm not really interested in being in a band anymore. And then their manager phoned me up the next day. She'd passed my number on to him. And then he called me up and they, they asked me to come down to a rehearsal because I'd met Pete Shelley a couple of years before, a couple of times. So I went down and rehearsed with them. And they, just before I was going to go down, they said, uh, oh, can you bring a drummer? And I said, sure. So I just got a mate, Philip, who was the drummer of Lack of Knowledge and friend. And um, we got in a got we actually we actually got a drum kit set up in the warehouse where I was working, and we just basically ran through a load of buzzcut songs. Showed up to the rehearsal the next day and played, you know, probably about thirty or so songs with them. And then they asked us to come back, and then that was it. There was a gig the following week in Barcelona or something, you know. And uh, and that's it. They never actually asked us to join. We just kept turning up. <laughs> <laughs> so how long were you with with the Buzzcocks? Well, about sixteen years, I think. By the time I left, yeah, it was some, something like just over sixteen years, something like that. Yeah, great time. Yeah, it was great fun. Yeah. So I guess my my question you you brought up Pete Shelley. So what's what's his legacy? Considering he he's gone, what? What do people remember him? Well, obviously the songs. Um, you know, most most people or most bands probably would have been quite happy to have written, you know, either one of Ever Fallen In Love or What Do I Get? But he wrote both of them, you know. So, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a different sort of question when it's somebody, you know, you were in a band with him and spent – a lot of times, I will say one thing about the Buzzcocks as well, that unlike a lot of bands, the Buzzcocks was much, much more of a democratic sort of thing. Everything was done equally. We hung out together when we weren't doing gigs or rehearsing or any of that stuff. I mean, it's quite funny, really, how different it was for, to how even I thought it may be. You know, we'd be around each other's houses, like, or oh, the tour had finished and you'd been on the road for a year and... A week later, you're phoning each other up going, oh, should we go out for an Indian <laughs> or whatever? Right. It just, it was, you know, it was a real great band to be in. We had such a laugh all the time. It was, and Pete was a, 
absolutely one of the funniest blokes. He loved larking around. He always loved to laugh, you know. And so, you know, for me, his legacy is just him as a person, really. You know what I mean? It's different. It's hard to, you know, to sort of separate it, if you see what I mean, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's like like anything in life, isn't it? Everyone's got their own idiosyncratic stuff. I mean, you know, a lot of a lot of his personality was was idiosyncratic stuff, you know, like he, he you know, just jokey. He would play up on it as well. Like he didn't like sport or anything like that, you know. So if we ever had a football out and we were having a kickabout in a parking lot or something until we'd try to pass the ball to him and as the ball would be rolling towards him, he'd just lift the leg up and step over it and then he'd look round and do a stupid grin. You know? <laughs> but, you know, it's just like, you know, it's just those things. You remember those things about people rather than, you know, his uh, prowess as a guitarist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you are and you are a footballer. You Because uh, I know we, we talked previous where you're like, I'm kind of missing my... <laughs> kind of missing my football. So who do who do you root for? Well, I'm an Arsenal fan, and um, okay, been, it's been a it's been a rough de- decade. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I mean, I played the bit I really miss is playing football because I played in Sunday league and I played in like a a, a Saturday league, like amateur football as well, oh, from okay. the early eighties right up until I was about fifty. You know what I mean? And uh, and that's what I really miss is the getting up on Sunday morning and going to going to play football. It's just the best thing ever. Freezing cold, raining, you get muddy. It's a laugh. You have a beer after. It's brilliant. You know, it's just yeah. the best thing ever. It's better. You know, it. I, I, it's hard to call it a hobby, really. You know what I mean? The idea that people get paid for doing that's absurd to most Sunday footballers. You you do it for free, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's what I, I miss that about football. I don't mind, you know. I mean, I love watching football on the TV, but it's a different thing to play in it. You know what I mean? Right. So going back to uh, you joining the Buzzcocks. So when you come into a band that already has a legacy, already has a number of of songs that you know are are remembered. Mm-hmm. Um. And you have to you have to play something that was written by other people and played by other people before. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you ever want to alter any of the the bass lines, or do you just you run with it and you're just excited to be playing one of those legacy songs? Lucky for me, um, when I was a when I was a teenager, I bought every Buzzcocks record on the day it was released, except the very first Spiral Scratch, which I just bought it. You know a month or something after it come out or a couple of months after it come out. But everything else, from Orgasm Addict onwards, right till when they split up, I bought every single record that that was released. I love the Buzzcocks. Another music in a different kitchen still one of my favourite albums of all time. I've got my original one that came in the plastic carrier bag upstairs. It's still sat there, you know. And for me, I loved Steve Garvey's bass playing anyway. I thought he was a really, really great melodic bass player doesn't get a lot much of a a look in really uh from in a lot of ways you know in in terms of you know just the the big picture of music not it doesn't get a lot people don't talk about him a lot but i really loved his what he brought to the songs you know and he kind of and and john marr as well just what a fantastic drummer he's the most musical drummer i think to come out of that scene because if you you could play the you could 
you could mute all the other instruments and just play the drum track of a Buscott song and you'd know what song it is because his right foot is basically playing the melody of the vocals. Mm. You know? And it's a thing I yeah. learned that about music. I learned that when I was young, that that's a thing to do. You know what I mean? Whether it would be Sly and Robbie doing it or whether it was Steve Garvin, John Mayer, it's the same thing, you know, that, that you're putting that, that there's the rhythm side to it and then there's the kind of what I always think the kick drum is is the mel playing the melody you know so for me when I joined the band I was already kind of you know I already thought like them if you see what I mean yeah. and so it was easy for me to just come in and just play all of what Steve was doing because the idea of of changing it would be to suggest somehow that I could improve it not that I would bring something different to it right. because it was already perfect you know what I mean and 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 it was sometimes, you know, I would fart around at a gig and add in a funny little lick or a little walking bass part where there wasn't one previously and all that. But it was very, very rare. I always stuck to mostly probably 99% to what Steve had done, you know. But the interesting thing is when me and Philip turned up to the first rehearsal, you know, I had no idea what they were going to be like as a band, Pete and Steve, you know. And... They, you know, after we kind of introduced and set up and everything, they said, right, uh, you know, what do you want to play? I said, well, you know, tell us, tell us what one you want to play. They said, well, what do you know? And I said, all 54 of them. <laughs> and they thought I was joking. They said, oh, I'll pick a song then. So I went, all right. And I chose a song. They went, oh, we don't know that one. So <laughs> because when they reformed, they'd only kind of relearn a certain amount of songs in order to to play shows uh, you know what i mean okay so um so i i kind of knew all this stuff and it was funny we ended up playing songs that they hadn't played since the original incarnation of the band you know so it was it was an interesting you know just learning all the time all these weird things about how groups are different from each other how they operate different from each other as well that was a big part of it but but yeah as regards the the playing no i definitely didn't try and change what um you know, what Steve did. Yeah. It was already good for me, you know. And you recorded how many albums with them? Mm. Not because I'm getting old, uh, because I don't really ever listen to them, because <laughs> I'm one of those people who don't listen to my, my own records. You know, the minute they're made, they're made, you know. But I think it was five. I think it was five. Okay. Five studio albums and, Jesus, probably about like 117 live albums or something. <laughs> there, yeah. There is a lot of live albums on Spotify. I hate live albums. I can't stand them. I think there's only ever been about two or three good ones in there, live at Leeds and, you know, a few other, few other odd ones here and there. But for the most part, I'm not a fan of live albums. To me, studio albums are where the – that's where the art is, you know what I mean? Yeah. So – what what was your favorite song to to play in front of the crowd that was not one of your your five studio albums that you guys recorded from 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 those um, from those fifty four Buzzcocks uh, songs? There was there was a lot of songs that I loved playing that they didn't want to play. Like we'd go through these phases. We'd go, oh, do we have to do that one anymore? And we'd pull some other old ones out of the bag because we used to play a, a fairly good mixture it was never it was never weighted towards the old material with like oh and there's a new one for you all to go to the bar you know it wasn't really like that it was always a, a, a we'd always have about half and half uh, but the half of old material would change on every tour 
So there was a lot of songs that I loved playing that, you know, they we would play them the first couple of shows on a tour and then Pete would might say, oh, I don't really want to play that one anymore. Or Steve would say or whatever, or it would just drop out of the set. But the one song that we played regularly that I did used to love playing was Fiction Romance. I, I never got tired of playing that. Never. never got tired it's just a great song to play it just feels so good when you're playing it you know you feel like you're right inside the the song you know just hard to explain you know you know i i i'm you know i sometimes think like you know the song was like a big cloud and i'm in the middle of it yeah. <laughs> you know what i mean yeah it's like that it's that's what it feels like when you're on stage you know when everything's going going great and the song's sounding good and the, the sound's great and the audience is great and just everything's perfect. It, it sometimes feels like that, do you know what I mean? Yeah. But that song felt like that all the time. Every time we played it, I just, I, if we if we were rehearsing and played it, I would feel exactly the same as playing it on a stage or listening to the record. It's, I mean, I just love playing that song. It's great. Wayne, what's your, what's your go-to Buzzcock songs? Oh, and the two he mentioned, um, What Do I Get, uh, Ever Fallen in Love, and mm-hmm. uh, Orgasmatic is another one of my favorites. I don't want to get mm-hmm. clown car horned, but um, those are the, but yeah, I can, I, I can put on the buzzcocks and just listen to them all day. They had a, an accessibility that I don't think a lot of punk bands had back then. Like for that early, they were much more musical than, than let's say some of the, they're contemporaries. Mm. And I think what's funny about the Buscots is when we, you know, when the Buscots reformed, you know, and we were going around like, I don't know, uh, it wasn't necessarily due to the internet because the internet hadn't really sort of kind of started, but it was there. But, but you know, what happened a lot was, you know, different Buscots. So it used to just be, oh, Ever Fall in Love's going to be used in a advert for something or it's the theme music for a tv show or it's going to be in a film something like that it was always what do i get and ever fall in love and through the 90s it started like other songs from singles going steady started getting picked up like why can't i touch it ended up being used as a theme tune for a mtv show and then um i'm trying to think what other ones you know and then suddenly like there was there was like seven or eight songs that were all known by people for different things. You know what I mean? And uh, I guess it was something that uh, no one years ago had, had ever thought that that was a thing that could happen in the future. The internet and and the way that television's changed and stuff like that has caused a lot more. I mean, it's even happened with my old band, you know, Lack of Knowledge. We, 
you know, we, we get people from all over the world now asking us about our records. When when we were going originally, we started in the late 70s and we broke up in 1986, we had two letters from people. <laughs> two. <laughs> one from Yugoslavia when it was still behind the Iron Curtain and one from, I think, somewhere in America, you know. and uh, But now, you know, like a lack of knowledge Instagram account, you know, we get private messaged by bands in Malaysia saying, do you want to come and do a gig here? We'll we'll set the gig up and we'll open for you. I mean, it's, it's nuts, you know. And that's kind of happening with songs as well, of people's songs from their past, you know what I mean? So it's something I don't think people would have, uh, would have expected to happen. I always remember the story of Nick Lowe when the Bodyguard movie was out. Sorry, I'm full of factoids. Um, <laughs> when Nick, you know, Nick Lowe, I remember a great interview with him when the uh, the Bodyguard movie had, had been out for a while, you know, and it was the, I think it's like, it's in the top 10 selling albums of all time. It's the biggest soundtrack movie album ever or whatever. And it's got, um, what's his face? Is it? Curtis Steigers or someone did a version of Peace, Love and Understanding. Yeah. And it on, it's on the soundtrack to the movie. And Nick Lowe was saying, you know, he went down to the, pick his mail up off the mat one one morning, you know, and he's picked the mail up and it's like, yeah, there's the gas bill, the utilities bill, sorry, you know, and, or whatever. And that's, oh, what's this one? Opened up. And it was like a royalty check from his publisher for some absolutely absurd amount of money, you know, half a million pounds or something. I can't remember what it was, you know, but Nick told this great story and he was like, and all I could think was, oh, I'd almost forgotten that I'd written that song, you know, because he had written it something like 20 years ago. You know, it was was an old Brinsley Schwartz song from like, you know, 1972 or something. You know, it, it had never really made him any money or had never really received any recognition, you know. And then, of course, Elvis Costello did that fantastic version on the back of, ooh, what is it, Oliver's Army, I think. Um, and, and then there's that cover version, you know. And now, of course, you know, Nick Lowe has songs being covered by country artists and, you know, his songs have kind of, they've kind of spread out in a, in a funny sort of way, you know. And I think that's what happens to a lot of heritage culture for want of a better phrase, has kind of caused that about old old music, hasn't it? You know what I mean? You're seeing it now. Yeah. It's really uh, some bands who had never had a song in placed anywhere in, in any kind of synchronization situation, like in a movie or a, a film or a TV show or whatever, have now had seven or eight songs. You know, who'd ever thought you'd see the Clash on a Levi's advert or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. So what do you, what do you think about the the Buzzcocks still putting out music considering Pete Shelley what he passed what three or four years ago? Yeah, God, is it that long, really? Yeah, oh, cool. You listen to any of it? No, I no. I mean, not because I um, not because I would want to. Uh, they haven't sent me a copy. <laughs> no, in fact, I spoke to the manager yesterday, funnily enough. I, I just sent him a little, you know, just dropped a little email to him, ask him how he was, you know, see see if he was all right, you know. But, yeah, I, don't, I haven't heard any of it. And uh, I guess they're still going and doing gigs because they can. Yeah. I, I, can I can't, I can, you know, I mean, 
that's kind of where music is now as well, isn't it? You know, I mean, I don't think people it's how to it's how to phrase things. You know, I always try to articulate what I want to, what I'm thinking. It's hard to articulate, but you know, when I say things like this, I go, I don't think people take music as seriously. I don't mean the bands. I mean just the music doesn't have that place in life. Not just in society, but I mean in life anymore. It did in the seventies when all there was was you know the television, which had three channels on it, and and pop music and rock music or boxing and football. You know there was that was it. There was not these everything hadn't been sort. There wasn't like this a huge amount of other interests now that people have, and music has kind of lost its cachet. So I don't think people are bothered anymore. And no one accuses anyone of selling out anymore if they have music on a, you know, on an ad on the TV. It's it's almost like in irrelevance now. It's, no one cares to that degree, you know. Yeah. I mean, sure, we care about music itself. And I'm not saying that I don't care because I do. I'm an old fuddy-duddy who still gets annoyed by stuff. Um, but but I, I don't think music has that power that it had you know in the way that things were looked at so it's like you know a new album by david bowie was or or whoever was just people would just they couldn't contain themselves you know i mean i remember when never mind the bullets come out and they kept delaying it by two weeks and those two weeks just seemed like months back then you know it was like it was so important that you had to get that record it was a focus it was the main thing in your life. And I don't think music has that anymore. But I think um, you have lots of other things that have replaced the, just the one thing. So I don't think you, it's possible to have one thing mean that much in society anymore. You know what I mean? So I fact, the fact that the band are still going is not like a big surprise. And I don't think it's as much of a big deal as it would have been. I can tell you something else, right? How, how it's not so much of a big deal. When I was in the when I first joined the Buzzcocks, before we'd put a record out, our manager came to the rehearsal and they'd been talking to the PR company that was doing all the press on our forthcoming album. And the New Musical Express had told our manager that under no account were they ever going to feature the Buzzcocks in the New Musical Express, the NME, uh, because they didn't, under any circumstances, condone the idea of bands reforming. That's how serious it was taken. Wow. Right? Only fast forward probably, you know, six, seven, eight years, and they couldn't get reformed bands on the front page quick enough. You know what I mean? Once that had been established as being a kind of a norm, it became... No problem at all. But because the Buzzcocks were one of the first kind of bands to reform, it was it was a big, big news item. You know, it was on the – it was a big news story at the time. But the NME had told our manager that they would no, never feature – his exact words, we will never feature you in the NME until you split up. We'll only have you we'll only have you in there if you split up. So they were saying they would quite happily have a retrospective or whatever – about the Buzzcocks career, but they wouldn't feature anything about the band in its guise at the moment, and they wouldn't review the new album or any of that stuff. And you know, it was it was a big deal at the time. That's how important it was, you know. But um, that was kind of a I, little tie in. There. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I will tell you, 
going back to your point of the, you know, waiting for that record and being all excited. So yesterday, um, yesterday, the, the new Fiona Apple record came out and mm-hmm. on Twitter, uh, I, I manned the, 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 the Twitter account for, for the podcast. And, um, most of our followers and most of the people that I follow for that Twitter account are music people. And Mm -hmm. I would say 75% of the posts that I saw yesterday were people who were super excited about the new Fiona Apple Mm -hmm. raving about it. I haven't listened to it yet, so I, I can't, I can't put my, my two cents, but that gave me some hope that may, mm-hmm. that maybe people are still wanting to consume records and yeah i think you're right but i think it exists in a different way now that's not a world changing event it's not a no. it's not a, it's not a national event i mean it's very very easy to to be fooled into thinking and i don't mean you i get told this all the time by people right that that it's all out there i'm not looking in the right space or the right place for it, you know what I mean? Or it is as important, I just can't see it. Well, my answer to that is that we all know the internet is just basically a series of bubbles, you know what I mean? They don't really represent the outside world. And and the difference being that, you know, when a, when a, when a record that was at he- highly anticipated years ago, you know, literally anyone in the street would know that it was happening. You know what I mean? Nowadays, yeah, you do get that excitement around a new record, but you, it's an excitement that's that's within a kind of a, a, a bubble almost, you know what I mean? Because all of the people that are excited about that record all come and get together to be excited about it in the same place. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's a cultural thing. It's not anything to do with people, I don't think. I think it's a cultural thing. It's just where we are now and, you know, the – things have moved. I, I don't use all those hackneyed phrases like, oh, the game's changed or, and you know, I don't say those. They annoy me. Yeah. <laughs> but it is, it is a kind of, we are in a, it's a, it's a different world now, you know what I mean? And that's how, that's where we are and that's how things are going to happen. And I think it's got its downside and its upside. The upside is that people can happily, as I said before, we went, uh, you know, into record that, what it, it possibly will do is it allow people to create freedom now to not worry about market forces. And so if you can if you can if you can be freed up from the tyranny of uh, of, of even your own thoughts of thinking, oh God, you know, if I put this record out, you know, is anyone gonna buy it or whatever? If you can be freed from that because now there is no physical product. Yeah. Um, if you're going to be in this world, I mean, I'm talking hypothetically, you're just a person, you're at home, you've got your studio, you're never going to do gigs, you're never going to release physical product, and you just want to keep putting music out there on your own website or on your own platform or whatever, you will be freed from the, you know, from market forces and, and maybe it will allow people the more creative freedom just person on a personal level. You know, yeah, we've all got the, per- the the ability to have the creative freedom, but unfortunately, the way the music industry, the mainstream music industry is, is there's no room for it. It's why they wanted to get rid of the David Bowies and the Elton Johns and the, the Sex Pistols out of the music industry and replace them with people from talent contests. 
because they're too troublesome. David Bowie and people like that have ideas. You don't want your pop stars having ideas. You just want them to, you know, to do what they're told and kind of get the money rolling in. And then when that's dried up after one and a half albums, boom, they're gone. Get the next person in, you know? And that really is what I was talking about before, about the the impresarios and the middlemen and the managers and the agents having control of the industry. And the only time it got outside of their control you know, arguably was when, you know, music was its intellectual and, you know, sort of kind of peak, you know what I mean? Look at like any kind of music that was made between, say, 67 and 82, 83, whether it was soul music, you know, thing or rock music, you know what I mean? The amount of stuff that's not pandering. I mean, my missus says to me the other day about something and I said, well, that's because Led Zeppelin never made any singles. She went, what? Yeah. I went, no, Led Zeppelin never made any singles. She went, well, it was like confusing. She's like, it was a commercial suicide, wasn't it? And I was like, no, no, you don't understand how music was back then, you know. And even Led Zeppelin never put out a record and it went straight to number one the following day and then dropped out of the charts two weeks later. Yeah. I have a copy of the Melody Maker sitting in the other room that I dragged out the other day from, I don't know, 1973 or something. And the front page is, you know, Led Zepp new album out this week. And it, and halfway through the little article, it says they're hoping, they're hoping that the album will rise to the top of the album charts by Christmas. It's August. Right. Right. <laughs> and that's Led Zeppelin. You know what I mean? So it's this kind of trajectory of records and everything about the way records made and music is now is is completely different somehow. So on that note, you're still making music, though, on your own terms, right? I am, yeah, and no one ever gets to hear it. I mean, my, mostly because <laughs> I take forever to finish anything. <laughs> Pontificating over, like, stupid stuff. But no, I, I you, yeah. I, I make music, and I I think one day I might make another record. So, so what else <laughs> is out there that that uh, has Tony on it that we should be listening to? The last ten years, I haven't m- actually even made any records with other people, uh, other than the ones that I've recorded other people's music and and played on their and played on the odd record, like um, Penny Rimbo from Crass has actually got a new record out and funnily enough it ties in with feeding the 5000 because it's the it was the kind of thing that he had done that had become a kind of uh, it was like you know feeding the 5000's beginnings are in this this record that he's putting out called Christ Reality Asylum and um I actually recorded some uh, some of it, uh, the, but most of the backing uh, when I had my studio in in uh, England up until five years ago, um, and I've made quite a few records with him. I think we had a single out. I say we. He had a single out uh, in two thousand and nineteen, which was a cover version of George Harrison's. Um, oh God, I forgot the titles. Uh, oh God. Anyway, I can't remember, but George Harrison's song on one side and Bob Dylan's song on the other side, and we recorded that in my studio. Uh, I did a lot of work with him over the last 10 years. Okay. Uh, recorded a couple of albums with a band from Britain called the Bermondsey Joyriders, which was Gary Lamins from a band called Coxbarrow. 
That was his. Uh, and the drummer was Chris Musto, who was the drummer of uh, drum for Johnny Thunders for a while. Okay. Uh, I did two albums with Duncan Reed, who was the uh, bass player for the Boys, which was Joey Ramone's favourite British band, apparently. Yeah. Well, he said that to me actually when I met him one time. Uh, but but um, yeah, I made a couple of records with him. Uh, oh God, who else have I made records with? Yeah, mostly in that department, mostly in the kind of recording department. Most of what I've done of the last uh, last ten years. I mean, I haven't set foot on a stage for ten years, oh, so okay. I think my days of being in a live touring band are over. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that would that would look like that. No, I mean it's not because I deliberately said that. So I'm not doing it anymore. I mean, I just thought. I'd sort of play with a band if something come along that I thought was uh, interesting. It's not about like the, how big the band is or how much money's in it, you know. In a perfect world, Michael Rofer would email me and say he needs me to come and play with him. You know, I don't know if you know Michael Rofer. He's a guitar player from Noy. I don't. I don't know. So, yeah, he's had a solo career for about thirty years. But you know, yeah, I was just sort of off the top of me head something arty farty and. Uh, and kind of avant-garde, which is kind of what I like, you know what I mean? But it's the idea that you get to a point where you look back and you go, you know, I just played the same songs 2,000 times. And um, and that, I think, it might subconsciously be a reason why I love being in the studio so much, because I can do something different every day yeah. with the days I've got left on the planet. So if Crass, <laughs> if Crass comes to you and says, we need a bass player, you're going to say, yeah? Or... That's never going to happen, number <laughs> one. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, it, it, it would never happen. And, and to be perfectly honest, if it did, I'd probably try and talk them out of doing it. Right. Okay, <laughs> perfect. So, so Tony, how did you how did you learn about Crass? How did you find about this record? Because this is the the record that you picked is the feeding of the five thousand. This was their first record, correct? Correct. And this dates back to what October nineteen seventy eight. Uh, yeah, it was recorded in October nineteen seventy eight. It was meant to be released in nineteen seventy eight, but I can't sort of remember the details exactly. But it it sort of finally made it out of the pressing plant. It was around the end of the year, so. I've got a feeling I might have actually owned a copy sometime around Christmas 78, but I think for the most part you couldn't actually buy it until January 79. Um, but lucky for me, or just by a fluke of, of you know, uh, evolution or whatever, <laughs> uh, I grew up, was born and grew up just a bike ride. You know, I could cycle to a record shop called Small Wonder Records, which is the label that put this record out. Oh, okay. And it was my local record shop. It wasn't the nearest place I could buy records, but it was the localist record shop that where you went there you know, Sex Pistols and Clash and Damned records were on the wall rather than being posters for the new Diana Ross record or the new Donny Osmond record or whatever, you know, like the, the other three or four closer record shops. So I used to cycle there. I, I first went there in, in in kind of like about the summer of 77 
my best mate from school took me there. So we've got to go to this record shop. So I went there. So I, it ended up becoming a regular thing. I would go every Saturday morning and it was a kind of record shop you could hang around in there for hours. God knows how he put up with it. But um, so sometime during the summer of 78, he was playing a tape cassette. He used to always play the demo tapes he'd got sent by by bands. It wasn't like kind of part of his A&R policy because there was no such thing. But he would play tapes in the shop of people that had sent tapes to him, and um, which is how we ended up putting out the first Cure single, the first Angelic Upstart single, the first Bauhaus single, uh, and, a, and a load of other great bands on that label. Uh, and a lot of the times they've sent their demo tape in and, and he wouldn't say to them, this is great, now we'll go in a big studio and record it. They would send the tape in and he'd say, this is brilliant as it is, let's release it like this. Mm, okay. And so in the summer of 78, it was kind of around the summer of 78, I was in the shop one time and he was playing this tape and me and my mate were just listening to it, just going, hell's this? And he said, it's this group, Crass. And they sent me a tape, you know, I'm going to do a record with them. And it was like, you know, it got to the end. It was like a seven or eight tracks. It was pretty much what was going to be on the record. Uh, and it would get to the end yeah. and then we'd go, right, play it again, play it again. And he would rewind and play the whole tape again. So by the time the record was, was kind of recorded and ready to come out towards the end of the year, me and my mate were so we demand that he played the tape literally every time we went in there. And then when the, when the real record had been recorded in the October, he would play that, play that excitedly in the shop. Oh, it's finished. It's great. So by the time the record was going to come out, I literally already knew all the songs, you know, loads of the titles and stuff like that. And then what happened was, is I was in small wonder on like a, Wednesday lunchtime or something or Wednesday afternoon or whatever. So it was a weekday. I always remember it was a weekday. There was no one else in the shop. And we were talking, me and my mate, and talking to Pete Stenick, the owner of the shop. And then the door of the shop opened and in walked Penny Rimbaud and G. G was uh, the person who did all the artwork to all of the crass releases. Okay. She's an artist and you know, everyone kind of in who knows about crass knows who she is. And they walked in the shop and they were holding a bunch of stuff that they'd brought in to give Pete to, to for in inverted commas promotion for the record. So they'd made these two banners to hang in the window of the shop. And what happened was me and my best mate were like two excited little teenage guys, you know, right to him we go, oh, we love your effing record. It's fantastic. You know, it's absolutely incredible, you know, all that. And they were shocked. And, uh, and you know, we were sort of probably blabbering too much and stuff. And, and Penn says, well, we've got all this stuff we're going to put up in the shop. But I tell you what, why don't we just put one of them in the window of the shop and you can have the other one. So he gave me this huge Feeding of the 5,000 banner, this handmade stencil banner, which I still have. Beautiful. And, uh, and a book of lyrics that had been printed on the Gestetner machine and a bunch of other stuff, you know. We were like kind of number one fans and they hadn't even got a record out. Right. <laughs> and so by the time the record came out, you know, I, I got one. The minute that the boxes came back from the factory, you know, I, I literally, me and my mate, legged it to the shop. And as soon as he opened up that first 
25 count box you know we bought the first ones out of the box and and it was from that moment you know it was never off my turntable I, I, I could quite happily play it six times in a row <laughs> that first month or so you know and uh, and probably within two or four, you know two months I, I think I might have been able to recite every single song on the record, I knew every lyric off by heart, you know, and I just loved them. Stop, you know, was going to see them play live and everything, and it was a a real, um, you know, important record for me on a lots of different levels. I mean, the first thing that I don't know if you know anyone who's listening to this who's kind of cut, took a, an interest because they've seen that it's going to be about Crass and Feeling Five Thousand. And a thing I always like to point out to people that when this record came out, punk, as we like to call anything like in that world, was in a real doldrums because all of the original bands, the Clash, the Sex Pistols, the Damned, the Buzzcocks, Generation X, whoever, had either split up, become kind of huge in a funny sort of way and and become huge in a way of like you know the buzzcocks were were like now a kind of a band who could put singles out and be on top of the pops every week the clash had decided to concentrate all their efforts on america and started kind of you know they'd put they put out uh give me enough rope which most kids who bought the first album went oh, bloody hell they've gone like a, an american band now or something you know and the damned had already split up and literally that month before feeling of the five thousand came out had reformed and i went to see them play and so you know punk was in a funny state and all of the kind of the, the next level down from that of the adverts penetration the x-ray specs and people like that were if they were still going They'd already made a second album, which had been hammered by the, you know, the music press, and people weren't going to see them as much, and you know, they'd had lineup changes. So all of the kind of first wave of punk had hit a real low point. And at that point, where Feeding the Five Thousand came out, you still hadn't had either the Mod Revival, Scar, and Two Tone was still just a twinkle in. Jerry Dammer's Eye, two-tone records. And what I call the kind of second wave of punk, the Angel, which, you know, people who listen to this might not get this, but, you know, guys my age who are from England and were buying records back then will get it. But people like the Angelic Upstarts, the Skids, the Ruts, the Members, uh, the Undertones, uh, people like that, they'd only had their first independent single out. So, for instance, you know, the UK subs hadn't, signed to RCA yet. The Angelic Upstarts hadn't had I'm an Upstart out. Uh, the Undertones hadn't put out Jimmy Jimmy. None of these, this kind of second wave of, of punk that really kind of turned into a big snowball thing with the members and people like that, which although people might think that's not very punk, it was before the kind of Mohicans and the, you know, the the discharge and GBH and stuff like that and the exploited. It was way before all that as well. None of that existed. And when this crass record came out, it was like a massive shot in the arm for punk. It wasn't just someone saying, you know, we're we're gonna go back and take the punk from 77 and kind of, you know, and we're gonna do it now to show all of these bands who have turned into these big rock acts now that this is what punk should be. What Crass did was something completely different. They'd taken the 
the kind of original 77 style British punk and they added a whole other load of stuff into it like the politics even the musical style was something that was so different to anything else as well I mean like one thing you it's hard to again you know at the time it was like uh, it it was like hearing Frobbing Gristle or Devo for the first time hearing Feeding the 5000 you had this military style drumming. There was no rock and roll drumming on it. They'd deliberately taken out all of the kind of blues elements of rock music and kind of stripped it back to a much more, so that there was almost more of classical and avant-garde in influences than there were rock and roll, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Rock and roll was kind of kept away from it. In a kind of similar sense, that, that Andy Partridge from XTC, you know, always did, tried to do his guitar part so he wasn't bending any strings because he considered that to be too too kind of blues-based and he wanted to get away from that, you know. And so Crass was a similar thing, you know, and, you know, one of the guitar players played open, open tuning, Alter D, so he didn't actually play any chords. He just put his finger across all the strings and, and that was the chord. You know, there was all these kind of little details within Crass as well, you know. And then, of course, to a teenager, you know, they've got the whole look, the stencils, everything's in black and white, the band all dressed. It was like the first time I saw him play live, I, I just thought I'd walked into a, you know, like a public execution or something. It looked like a firing squad. It was in. It was in ridiculous you know i mean how different from a rock band i'd probably seen the damned the following week and had probably seen i don't know spiz energy or something yeah. the week before that you know or kleenex or something you know and uh, and it was just so different from what everyone was doing it really was much more in common with with something like um Frobbing Gristle would be, would be a kind of an obvious thing, was what it was closer to, even though Krauss were playing kind of, you know, what for all intents and purposes was pop music in a completely different way. Uh, it was so radically different from what rock bands had been doing, you know what I mean? So the whole thing about Krauss, it was the entire package itself, if you like, that was the the thing that just blew everyone's mind. And was it the profanity? Was it the, the anarchist, you, you know, ideas that they were, that they were throwing out there? Yeah, that's a good point because I think that one, one of the things about the record itself was cause most people picked up on, once it became a bit more widespread, people picked up on the course that do they owe us a living? Of course they effing do right. song was kind of like, People would not laugh at it, but but think it was kind of like a, you know, strange concept for a song and stuff like that. And as regards the politics side of it, for you know, for a young fifteen-year-old kid from a council estate, you know, we didn't really know if ever, you know, anarchy was a word that was in a Sex Pistols song. And yeah, of course, I'd probably been on, you know, Rock Against Racism, The Clash, you know probably had a CND logo somewhere on me T-shirt or whatever, or on a jacket or something like a leather jacket and things and an A in a circle. Somewhere. But, you know, you didn't really know anything about it. It was just it was just the noise and the look and everything that attracted you in, you know, and it was – but what Crass did is it, it, it 
it sort of took you along with it. So rather than you just becoming an instant convert, you was, you know, it's hard to explain, but you know, like most people think you listen to a crass and then you bought the record home, played it, and and two weeks later you was a vegetarian, (laughs) you know what I mean, or something like that. And and it wasn't really like that. I mean, you... When you first went to Seacrest, everybody was still dressed up like Johnny Rotten and the, and the Clash. You know what I mean? We, everyone still had spiky hair and brothel creepers and bondage trousers and things like that. There was no anarcho-punk. There was no – or peace punks or whatever people want to call it. That didn't exist. There was nothing that, that – they, they were setting – they were making the rules to this stuff. You know what yeah. I mean? And it exploded because within six months, Crass were along with, you know – Adam and the Ants and and the UK subs, probably, you know, the three biggest underground bands in the whole country, you know what I mean? And, you know, you couldn't walk down the street anywhere if you saw a punk rocker, he had the Crass logo on the back of his leather jacket with probably Adam and the Ants above it and the UK subs underneath it or something, you know. It was like they were the, the, the kind of the three bands that everybody like throughout 79, you know. And and then I think the politics, it, it it got to a lot of people sort of on a on a kind of a not a superficial level, but on a kind of a first rung on the ladder politics level for teenagers, you know, of like reading the lyrics was a was great, you know what I mean? And then they're attacking all these things, including your favourite bands and stuff, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like having a go at Steve Jones or attacking the clash and things like that. But it wasn't really like they were actually attacking the Clash as people. It was like the Clash was just a kind of a representation of what they were, wanted to attack within the kind of music industry and, and what the music industry had done to punk. Because, you know, Steve Ignorant, the singer of Crash, I mean, again, one of the things that drew you in as a, as a young kid, especially if you was like a 15-year-old working-class kid from a council estate, when you heard Crass, he sounded exactly like you. Yeah, yeah. His voice coming out of them speakers was just sounded exactly like you and your mates. So you could really identify with it that way. And then when you read the lyrics, I've had a go, you think to yourself, God, a bit heavy, you know. But then, you know, Steve Steve was a huge fan of The, the Clash. Uh, that was the first punk band I think he saw. Uh, Penny Rimbaud, uh Again, he went to see The Clash. The first time I saw Crass, Steve Ignorant was wearing a pair of Vivian Westwood bondage trousers, which had previously belonged to Penny Rimbo. So it wasn't they weren't living outside of that world. And those uh, those kind of a- attacks on the the things like the you know the Sex Pistols or punk rockers wearing gold plated safety pins and all these kind of things in the lyrics. They, they're kind of more, you know, I don't know, the, you know, have to say they're symbolic or whether they're, whatever they are, then they're, they're not really like attacking the the kids for wearing bondage trousers. They're not really attacking the clash as people, you know, for for being in a band and I don't know, yeah. you know, at being successful, or whatever. It's kind of more of a comment on. I, I think they may have rhymed easier as well. <laughs> right, right. But what it did is it it was kind of a it inspired you to look at things differently. That's what their lyrics did. And it affected so many people over the, the next few years. That, and people I know my age, they still like it today. They're still, even though they might have, you know, a fairly, look fairly straight, their clothes, or you go in their house or a fairly straight looking house and that, 
you know, inside of them, they still have a, a thing where they're like, you know, some kind of on a political level or on a lifestyle level. Yeah. It's the thing chase all the way back to, to crass when they was a kid, you know what I mean? How they view the world in certain areas of, of their life and things like that, you know what I mean? Stuck with people. Yeah, so that kind of feeds into, you know, all the things that you're talking about of the the a little bit of the lifestyle and how this was different. I I'm kind of looking at the first the first track Asylum because I kind of I I kind of feel like that sets the tone for the rest of the record because it's got it's got the anger, it's got the profanity. It's so unlike anything else that's that's out there, or at least what what I knew of, you know, late seventies punk. You know, again, my I'm not I'm not I don't consider myself a punk. However, uh, those those Clash records are really important to me, and I don't I don't hear anything anything like asylum on any of those clash records or other uh punk bands that i that i knew from from that from that era is that safe to say that when you put the needle on at first and you're like this is so different there's a funny thing right i mean just to give you an idea of the world that we were living in back then it it was a the what shall I word shall I use the state the system the government whatever it is you know the main uh, stream of society weren't particularly happy about punk to begin with when for instance that feeding of five thousand was being pressed the original pressing of it had that track omitted from the record so they replaced it with silence and just called the track the sound of silence and it was a it was a comment on them being denied free speech because people at the pressing plant refused to press the record because they thought that the lyrics were blasphemous and the lyrics were still on the record so what you had to do is when you got the record you had to go into small wonder or send them a blank cassette and then crass took all the blank cassettes back to the house and recorded that track Asylum onto the cassette and then mailed it to you. Oh, wow. Which I, I still have my cassette as well upstairs somewhere. But so that's that. That's how you got to it. It was only years later when they repressed the record when no one cared anymore that the Asylum made it back onto the record. Oh, okay. Uh, or when people at the pressing plant weren't actually listening that intently. Um, but the one thing about that is that I'd never heard of anybody attacking religion, even on a punk record. Sure, people like Public Image had had that uh, song Religion on um, First Issue, the first Public Image album, only a few months later. Really, the first two things I can think of in the punk world where someone actually articulated a solid thing about, um, about religion and it wasn't because I think it wasn't because people were religious or people were scared to attack religion. It's just that no one had done it. And certainly when you look at those lyrics, 
no one had probably been able to articulate it in that way either because, I mean, it would have been people like me writing it <laughs> and it would have just been God's rubbish, right. you know, something like that because I would have just been a duncey kid from a council estate, you know, trying to write a song about how rubbish religion is and that's exactly about the level it would have been. So no one had, had come out with these ideas and, and and had kind of presented it in in such a straightforward way as well. I mean, it's like, do they owe us a living? You know, which is the the following track. It sounds kind of simple, but if it's a bit like, you know, when people criticise something, you know, I go, oh, a bloody five-year-old could do that. And then someone goes, well, why didn't they then? Right. Um, <laughs> do they owe us a living's kind of like that? Oh, I, don't, I don't mean that a five-year-old could have done yeah. it, but I mean the lyrics are actually a really, really fantastic lyrics but you know the chorus itself and and what the what the 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 message of the lyrics is trying to say which is that you know society wants to you know uh keep you you know you're you're basically a prisoner to society you're not have freedom only exists within the confines of a framework that they allow you know so therefore the idea that you know do they owe us a living well of course they do because they've created the framework that we have to exist in. So if then, you know, <laughs> they do owe us a living, you know what I mean? And that was kind of, but it was it was articulated in a really, in a way, with swearing in the chorus helps a lot when you're like a teenage boy. It's not something you don't like the swearing, but the swearing itself is kind of, gives it much more of a pop kind of chorus you know what i mean and that sounds absurd to say because they could have done it without swearing and it would have had the same message but you know when you're a kid and you're into punk and all that you know it's the the, the toughness of it and the you know the the loudness the, the aggressive attitude and the all that is value what, yeah yeah it's what draws you in to begin with i mean yeah. if it would if it would have just been john denver singing those lyrics there's no way i'm even listening to it you know what i mean <laughs> It's not happening. <laughs> and the fifteen-year-old me, definitely not. You know what I mean? Yeah, and definitely, I think, I think, do they owe us a living? Definitely sets the tone because we're gonna we're gonna come back to that theme at the end of the the album as well. But mm-hmm. yeah, there's plenty of plenty of conversation about um, you know society's rules and and trying to break free from those rules to kind of form your own path. What, what do you, what do you think about the theme of do they owe us a living and how it kind of weaves into the rest of the record? Like say it really, uh, it encaptures encapsulates the whole, you know, anarchist, like, like he had said, anarchy was just a word in a sex pistol song. And this is, this is putting it into motion. This is making it real life. And uh, for anything that they lack, it is not conviction. Um, every song, whether I, I I could connect to it, you know, and 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 feel like I had something I want to listen to again or not, you you definitely feel you get their point. They're not they're not pretending. They're not doing this to make money. They're doing this 
to make a point. Like they're, this is what they believe in and they are, they're making everybody aware of that. And this is for everything. This is probably, this is a song I'll listen to again. This is one of the, this is like a perfect punk song. It gets to the point. It's got this great, you know, angry, but yet rhythmic feel. And like I say, everything is inside the song that you want in a punk rock song. And I think that's how we heard it. You know, when we were, when we were like teenage kids, it was like a perfect track. You know, it had, it was, it was different enough from all other bands, you know, had the military drum in and stuff like that, you know, and the kind of, it was fast and it, and that, it's another thing that I kind of just realized as I was talking about it, how fast crass seemed at the time. Nowadays, you would think that do hours of living positively plods along because we're, we're so used to, you know, speed metal or whatever. You know, but back in 1978, you know, apart from Motorhead, there was no one else. You know, I remember buying the first Clash album and getting home, and I, I didn't think that humans could make music faster than Janie Jones. I didn't think it was humanly possible. <laughs> you know, and then the day I was a living, it blitzed it you know it blew it out of the water and that was another factor about the day of living that the kids like but in the lyrical content you're dead right it encapsulates that song encapsulates everything and if you ever wanted in 1978 or early 1979 to get 15 year old punks that thought some of the older punk groups had now lost it attracted to you that was the song to do it and one of the things about the lyrics, again, you go into what you say, is to think what differentiates Do They Owe Us A Living with a lot of the first wave of punk's lyrics when they're trying to talk about, you know, society's rules and, you know, stuff like that. I was too young at the time to realise it and I wouldn't have been able to articulate it and I don't think I was as sophisticated you know, in terms of politics as I am now, even though it's not on a level I would want to be. The difference between Crass and some of those early things when people are going like, you know, ah, they, won't, they won't let me do what I want. We want the freedom to do what we want. A lot of it sounds like kind of right-wing libertarianism. It's just someone saying that they don't want to do what society, you know, they want to, their, their idea of to, you know, do what they want is to do what they want in society without society telling them what to do, but still within society. You know, it's like, why can't I drive my car at 150 mile an hour? Which, which I think is the perfect segue to the next song, the end result, because he's talking about, look, I'm, I'm the product. You guys are making me into this product. However, nobody really wants my product. Like, you know, it's a, you know, he, he references that, you know, I'm an orphan and I'm a, I'm a stair carpet that everybody's walking on. Um, so I, I think that that's, that, that perfectly feeds into that theme of still keeping that, do they owe us a living? Well, here's, here's the living. And do I really want this end result? Well, I think end result ap ap appealed 
I mean, it's a much more, uh, it's much more punkier sounding, you know, that song as well. And I, I absolutely, I absolutely love it. Again, that's another, I think it's one of Steve's lyrics. The first, I think the first two, most, I, I think most of Feeding is Steve's lyrics. An end result probably appealed to loads of young kids because, you know, for a for a young guy, the vibe you get from that song is like, oh, please don't make me leave school and work in a factory right. for the rest of my life. Yeah. You know, it's kind of it, – it, I know it sounds weird to say because the lyrics are so much, much more going on than that and they're so much more diff- – deeper than that but you know when you're a 15 year old kid and you're into the 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 records and bands for the first time and you're young and you're discovering you you haven't really learned anything about politics you do hear things in those ways and to to young kids it had that kind of punk rock message of i don't want to you know again it's only when you get older you realize that actually the lyrics of end result aren't a kind of libertarian type lyric where it's like I don't want to work in a factory. I want to be my own boss, you know, have my own startup or something, yeah. you know. It's um, it's actually about the, you know, your re- existence being reduced to, you know, that of a, a, of a robot or whatever, you know, and, and you have been commoditized, so you are just a human resource. The glossy, sup- the glossy packages on the supermarket shelf, yeah. I mean, the end result is is being... Yeah, not being excited about the end result, like just like you said, not being. Yeah, they want you to be a part. You know, there's a line in here about I don't, I don't want your crazy system. I don't want to be on your files. Like I don't want to be a part of this. Yeah, yeah. The end result is this boring or this very confined, you know, basically structured life. And I, I may, what if I don't want that? I don't want the end result. I don't want to end up like that. Mm. And and again, it goes back to that thing of the of 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 the hours of living where, you know, the, the whole concept of, of the kind of anarchy that, you know, that, that Christ is talking about isn't some kind of punk rock anarchy where, you know, you just don't pay rent and, you know, live in a, do what you get up at 12 o'clock every day and do what you want, you know, drink beer if you want. I don't know. It was, it was the idea that the, the, the kind of world that they wanted to, that they were aspiring to and wanted to live in was outside of of, of the boundaries that are, that have been set, the, the way society is set up, you know. So it was like you either work in a factory or you work somewhere else, you know. You're that's all there is. You can't actually live outside of that, and that's you know what they're trying to 
put out there, the message to people is that there there is a there is something outside of all this where we could have the world that we you know we could have everything we want in the world, but we just don't have to have this system for it to exist in. You know what I mean? And I, you know these are all other discussions. You know what I mean? If you like, aren't they about how society set up? You know, whether we talk about you know money, commodities, property ownership nature whatever you know what i mean it, it, but 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 the kind of the simple idea of those lyrics is it is you know i think it's more to do with the fact that like within society you are just a number you know you are just a commodity you're a human resource that can be hired and fired and, and society doesn't actually care really about you as a as a person you know as a as a human being with a brain you know whatever yeah and i think a lot of and through this whole record one of the things is i think anarchy at some point was just associated with just smashing things up <laughs> just breaking the law to break the law and they're actually saying this system and this 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 whole establishment look at all the bad things that they do look at you know look at north ireland look at you know um other, you know, other countries that, you know, former like colony countries, Asian countries and, and the, the poor. And then look at all the, these things that they do and the things, you know, they use television to do it. And all of these things that they do, they're not, I mean, what ultimately what is this system giving us? And, and look at all the bad parts of it. Why can't we just do what we want? We're not going to, we, we won't do any worse than that. Mm. Or we won't even do those kind of things. Yeah, I, I agree. I think, and and if if you look at where we are now in society, with the the idea of the one percent and oligarchs and the concentration of you know of wealth into the hands of such a few amount of people, it's it, it makes the it makes those days when when that record was released seem positively you know innocent <laughs> and naive, doesn't it? You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. All right, so switching from that theme, we go to the fourth song on the record, which is They've Got a Bomb. For the sound clip that I'm using, I'm going to just tell the listeners, don't adjust your volume. There's nothing wrong with the audio of the podcast or the record. The effect is supposed to be there. Again, do not adjust your volume. <laughs> so, so, 
So what do you guys think about the effect? I mean, cause there's, there's 15 seconds of, of silence and like, like only in a punk song, could you get away with that? Right. Well, I don't think it's only in a punk song. I think the one thing about that silence in the middle, talk about that first. I mean, it's used more again, you know, as a compositional uh, sort of device because I mean, you know, the songs about, the songs about nuclear war and the silence is obviously meant to be yeah. the silence after the bomb's gone off. You know what I mean? And the and and the and the, the fallout and everything has subsided. The silence is what's left. You know. Um, but again, you know, that song, the lyrics. I mean, we were. You know, when you're a kid at that time, and I don't, I think it actually got worse after that record. I think from that record coming out, it's, it, you know, it, in a funny sort of way. I don't know if I'm ashamed to, uh, 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 embarrassed to say or not, but I think that record, it, that song, when it used to get to that one, it kind of scared me a little bit. Which again, you know, it's what what seeing Crass the first time when I saw him play live. You know, it was almost scary. They looked like a fire squad, but again. Crass were deliberately trying to, to, to shock you in those ways because they were trying to get you to think about things in in tougher ways than what you'd been thinking before. Where you just you can just ignore a newspaper or a headline, you know. Um, and when I that, when you heard that record the first time, I mean, it was kind of it it felt sort of like it gave you a bit of power, but it was also a bit scary because it was so dark, you know. Yeah. And from that moment on. I think for like about the next five or six years of my life, and probably for a lot of guys my age, you know, who had, had got into crass and things like that, it became a preoccupation. I mean, we we're just obsessed with nuclear war for about the next five years. It was a thing. I mean, it was. I think it probably created some weird residual feeling somewhere underneath everybody. Do you know what I mean? But it was like in the. It was in everyone's mind all the time. You know, from. The, the, I think the following year, you know, Russia's invaded Afghanistan. Then you had like, um, well, you know, after that, I mean, there was all sorts of stuff, weren't there? There was a glut of them, like one after the other, you know what I mean? And then, you know, in things like not by 1982, you know, the Falklands War, which people were worried that that might kick off and people take so. But, you know, so nuclear war was a big deal. But no one had, had ever articulated it in musical sense that, that sort of powerfully or darkly before, you know what I mean? And it really did genuinely sound scary, that record. And the bit in the middle where it stops, I mean, it's phenomenal, really, you know what I mean? It's such a simple device, yet why hadn't anyone else thought of doing it? Why had any, no one else come up with a, <laughs> with a song about our horrific, you know, not so much the nuclear war itself, but, you know, we're, we're, being, we're being held prisoner you know, in our minds by this threat of nuclear war hung over our heads all the time by the state, by the system, by the by the powers on the planet, the superpowers or whatever. It's held over your head all the time as a threat. That's what the song's about. You know, it's it's not about it's not about wouldn't it be terrible if there was a nuclear war. It's about how how terrifying having the threat dangled over you as a punishment is, you know what I mean? All the time. Oh yeah. We, we lived in the eighties. So we, Mm. we know all about the cold war and 
the, 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 the fears of, of living with that. And, um, yeah, it's definitely, definitely in, in pop culture as well. I'll tell, I'll tell you, I'll tell you funny enough, I've only just thought about it is my, my studio. I couldn't work out whether I was going to call it cold war studios or civil defense studios, but my studio is basically a, a kind of, <laughs> it looks like a museum to the Cold War because I have all kinds of metal nuclear fallout shelter signs, Russian signs, posters, things. I've bought, got tons of stuff. The whole studio is kitted out in Cold War stuff. I even did the lighting like a, like a kind of a underground bunker lighting, you know what I mean? So again, you know, it was weird. I only just thought of that as we were talking about it, the residual thing, subconscious thing in my mind, well, there it is. It just occurred to me that that's what that is. That is hilarious. Yeah. All right. The, uh, the following song is punk is dead. And I was going to, mm-hmm. I was going to throw this out. So, uh, whenever I'm booking the guests, I always say I'm more of the Americana and, uh, adult contemporary guy, as opposed to Wayne, who is more the, rock and punk guy and uh, i would say just just in them calling out the clash and patty smith who um i i like both uh i i would say that um is this song basically saying that the clash are sellouts or are they going after the the corporate side of the clash signing with cbs and patty smith signing with a major label well, yeah, it's the it's the latter of the two because, like I said before, Steve Ignorant first band he went to see was the Clash, first punk group, I believe. Um, he loved the Clash. Pen Pen loved the Clash as well. Um, and funnily enough, the first time I ever heard "Horses" by Patti Smith was at Dial House um, because Pen Penny Rimbaud is a huge fan of. Uh, Oh, of that album, yeah. So the idea that they're attacking those as people isn't really what the what the lyrics are about. The lyrics are, are are actually just about the commodifying of of protest. If you kind of look at what Patti Smith kind of represented and uh, and her sort of approach to rock music and what she was doing with it, and the Clash's approach and what they were doing it with their lyrics and stuff, and you know the Clash were like a British you know, punk rock group. The whole idea of punk is dead isn't because it's the groups of uh, are dead or punk itself, the fashion is now been officially closed or whatever. It's the idea that once the industry or business interests or whatever get hold of anything, it ceases to really become what it is. I mean, you could probably say the same thing, I don't know, about graffiti. I don't know. You know, I mean, there'll be there'll be loads of other things, art movements or whatever that I know nothing about that I've heard of, but I've probably only heard of the bit once it became commodified. And there's probably a whole bit before it, you know. Yeah, you can go all the way back to the beginning of rock and roll. I mean, at one point, it's this underground, uh, predominantly black, and then it's taken from there because they find out there's money in it yeah. and they... Yeah, and then they then it becomes then they water it down, and then there's you know Elvis Presley. The same thing happened to hip hop and rap. It yeah. went from being this underground thing that you know 
that somebody realized they could, you know, that was popular and becoming more popular. And then the money comes in and then it gets watered down and made accessible to everybody else. Um, I love the, absolutely love the line, Patty Smith, you're the, your napalm, you write with your hand, but it's Rimbaud's arm. Like that's so, that's amazing. Like you can write it, but we're the ones that, 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 that make you want to write it. And we're the, we're the, we're the instrument with which it, it it's put out there mm. uh, and, and is able to move in the, in the real world. So, I mean, yeah, this, this is a, this is one of my favorite songs, probably my second or third favorite song of this record. <laughs> It's a weird sort of paradox in a way because it's the clash that the crass are are singing a song called Punk is Dead, yet there they are rejuvenating punk single-handedly. It's a it's a strange thing when you think about it. You know, what I mean, they're they're telling you the you know they're telling the kids punk is all over, mate. It's dead. The big business interests have got hold of it and they're wrecking it. And and right there, that's Crasser actually with that record, feeding the five thousand have rejuvenated punk, gave it the shot in the arm that needed it for it to come back in a kind of new way. And and what Crass did is they they were really the the band that kicked punk back off again in in the world the way that we know it today, you know what I mean? And that kind of gap between the first wave of punk and the kind of late seventy eight through to the summer of seventy nine second wave of punk has almost been written out of the history. The the kind of the the slump I always think of it as being like a kind of a slump in punk, not because the bands were producing that much worse material, but it was because they'd kind of moved out of what would have been the punk sort of arena into the mainstream arena, you know what I mean? And they'd left this void and nothing new was coming in to take its place. But you also had other factors as well, like I was particularly a fan from about the summer of 78 onwards of a, of a, the kind of emerging post-punk scene. So, you know, I was going to see bands like Essential Logic, Kleenex, Spiz Energy, Punishment of Luxury, uh, loads that, that bands of that kind of, Cabaret Voltaire, Certain Ratio, people like that, I don't know, whoever in that kind of world. And that was where I felt that, that punk had sort of, had come, that had come to kind of fill the void of the, of what I wanted from punk, which was something a little bit more earthier, do you know what I mean? And the, in terms of the music, it was crass that really kind of kick-started the, 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 the music and the politics and the kind of 
that side of it because it was only after crass, even though bands like Discharge and GBH and Exploited and stuff had formed, it was only the I think after crass came out, those bands then were putting records out and, and it became a kind of unified thing. You know, he had this this thing called punk now then kicked off a second time and by about 1982, you know, there was even magazines, you know, weekly magazines or whatever, Punk Lives and things like that were out, you know, which you could buy in the local news agents. But as regards the the lyrics, that yeah, they're not they're not really attacking the people themselves. They're attacking the kind of old idea of of, of it being bought up. All right. So sixth song is Reject of Society. And so that kind of brings us back to the uh, that theme that we talked about previously. Yeah, it's much more of a song like End Result or something, Rejects of Society. So the, the lyrics of You Give Us Conscious Money, Now You Start to Worry. What What is the conscience money as, as they're as they're bringing that in the lyrics? Well, I, it's weird. I, I think that um, it could refer to anything, really. It could refer to unemployment benefit, or it could just refer yeah. to wages. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? Your weekly wage. I don't know if it's even definable in, in any sense other than that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I'll have to go and get the lyrics out and read the whole song, I think. <laughs> because I think a lot of the things you find with the crass lyrics is that rather like kind of Elvis Costello's lyrics in a funny sort of way, he puts lots and lots of different little couplets and things together into one song. And then the chorus of it becomes the kind of unifying thing. You know what I mean? Um, and I think that's one of those songs that's like that. Yeah. Even though it's got an overall theme, I think that they can go off in these kind of micro ways and eat for a line, they'll mention something else and they'll come back to the, the, the theme and then they'll go for a line and mention something else a bit later on and come back to it, you know what I mean? But I think the song, again, is... Uh, isn't, oh, God, I'm trying to think what some of the other lyrics are. Is that not for me, Factory Talk? Sweet enough, not the Frankenstein monster you created is it's turned against yeah, you, and I, now you're hated. Yeah, I don't know about that one. Yeah, okay. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the exact meaning of that those lines would be, but you know, to the young me, they were definitely a. a a way of looking at society that, like, you know, if you even started having, you know, what might pompously be termed as your own thoughts, you know, and you'd enlightened yourself or you'd become enlightened because you'd read something or whatever, and you thought, yeah, why the fuck do I, why the hell 
bleep that bit out. Why the hell do I have to work <laughs> in a factory from the day I leave school till I'm 65 and get a gold watch for my services? Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't want to do that. But I also don't want to do the other option, which is to be on the dole, you know, be unemployed. I don't want to do that either. I want to have a world outside it. I think... You know, again, these are recurring themes in crass songs, you know. Um, and, you, you, you know, one sort of might think that if you want to get the message across, hammer it home. So why not have the same recurring themes keep cropping up? You know what I mean? I think it's a good tactic. You think that theme is also in the next song, the General Bacardi? Well, General Bacardi, I think, is more of a straightforward anti-war song. I mean, I, I could be wrong. There could be like other deeper levels on it, but I mean, when I I, I always heard it as being a, a straight thing. And again, back in those days, no one ever sung about it, and no one there was no bands that had had songs about being conscientious objectors. I can't, I couldn't name a song yeah. from before Feeding the Five Thousand. There's so many things and themes on Feeding the Five Thousand that no one had done before, and if they had, it would have been so obscure on the you know, a mention of a song in a somewhere on an independently pressed record that had sold 200 copies. But I, I'd never heard of anybody having a song about being a conscientious, conscientious objector to war. And I mean, obviously it was a time when war was a big thing and they were talking about bringing back national service and because of the, the threat of imminent nuclear war and, you know, all these kind of skirmishes going on all over the world and and some group you know that you liked and that you could go and see and there'd be you know a couple of hundred kids like you all at the front singing along to the words it kind of gave you a belief that you wouldn't be left on your own and put up against a war and shot like a deserter or whatever you know or you know you felt like that someone saying it out loud you know you could feel like there were you know that you weren't alone not that i ever sat around thinking oh if there was a war i'd be a conscientious objector or sod that you know why should i go and do their dirty work or whatever you know what i mean you never you never even crossed your mind just for of a war and we're all gonna die <laughs> right. but you know you never actually had thoughts about yeah why why is it why are the generals all sat up sat in a comfortable um they're sipping the Bacardi and the privates are feeling yeah, the pain. Exactly. You know, I don't think anything really uh, gets that message across as well as uh, the fourth series of Black Adder. It probably does everything that Crass were trying to say in that one series. It, 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 it really does hammer home that kind of that the way that war was set up or the way that. Uh, the hierarchy, you know, of, of, of everything. Do you know what I mean? And the privates are just the cannon fodder and all that kind of stuff. Black, the fourth series of Black Adder, in which it's set in the World War One, really does kind of it it, 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 it. it sort of nails it. You know what I mean? It, in a way that probably the lyrics to that song do, but it's obviously not as well known as something like the Black Adder. I feel like when I was a teenager we might have been the first load of teenagers to actually think like that. Ones that weren't, you know, poets or something. You know what I mean? Normal kids whose dad was a garbage collector or whatever. We might have been the first people to think like that. No, it's, you're not a, 
you know, you're not a, a, a wet lettuce or a drip if you don't want to go and jump in front of a machine gun on behalf of the, you know, the the other interests, whether it be the, you know, the the state or big business or whatever. We're, and, we're, and we're finding that out now because, I mean, you look at these so-called wars that get fought these days and then, you know, people are complaining about, even people in the army and that are complaining about why, why are we even there? We're just going there fighting on the interests of big business for over oil or whatever. So now even people within the army and that, uh, you know, in, in the West started have started questioning things. But back then, you know, you were just expected if there was a war. I remember when the Falklands War started, you know, my dad saying to me, yeah, you'll, you'll get called up to all that. And I remember, you know, being a young 19, 20-year-old or whatever I was, I said, no, I, I, I'm not going. He said, but you've got to. I said, no, I'm not going. He'd go, but you have to. If they say you've got to go, you've got to go. My dad really did used to, used to think like that and say stuff like that. And, I, and it wasn't I was standing there thinking, no, no, there's a diff- There's another way, Dad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just was indignant. I was like, no, I'm not having – I ain't going to have my life tossed away like that. Do you know what I mean? That, yeah. I probably didn't articulate it in that way, but that's kind of what it felt like. He's like, You felt like, no, all some of that to do was say no. If we all just said no, then does that kind of feed into so the the one short song on the 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 beast the the B side is the fight war not war. So if you're fighting the the war of you know taking down the 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 system that is making you join the army and becoming those privates, is that because I because when I first heard it, I'm like what do you mean fight war, not wars? Like you're fighting against the plurality of wars. I don't get it. And now, now that, um, you know, I've listened to this record a couple of times, it feels like, look, you fight the society war and that's going to prevent future wars. Is that kind of the concept on the, of mm-hmm. that, of that song? Yeah, I always thought I always took it at face value, meaning, you know, that we should be fighting against the idea of war, you know, or fighting to stop to stop war rather than going and fighting wars. <laughs> I really did see it. I've only ever sort of really seen it as that. Uh, sometimes I, you know, I, I'm guilty of overthinking things, but in this case, I don't think I, I don't think I did, you know. I think it's just about res- yeah. it's not just about resisting the idea of having to go and fight in a war. I think it's 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 the idea of fighting against the machinery of war, trying to bring that down. Like you say, you know, I think that's what it's really about. So so fighting like Secure Corps, which is a, in a couple songs later. I had to look this up. You can tell I'm from America. So uh, uh Securicor was one of the UK's large largest security businesses. Securicor was like what Wells Fargo used to do. They used to have these vans, didn't they, that drove yeah. the all the money from one bank to the other and all that kind of stuff. So Securicor had these 
they had these kind of recognisable, like a slightly bigger than an Econoline van or like a U-Haul size, the smallest U-Haul size cube truck sort of thing, all with metal bars around it. And the two guys driving it had like motorcycle crash helmets and they wore gloves and they carried like a, a nightstick and all that. And they just transported the money around businesses. Like they would pick money up from a, from a say, a... Um, uh, they would pick money up from a business head office and take it and deliver it to the bank, you know, thousands of pounds. And they were always being turned over by criminal gangs. <laughs> mm, okay. Yeah. And they were the only people doing it really, you know? Yeah. Um, and then uh, right after that is a song called sucks, which uh, uh, they kind of, uh, go after uh, the religion aspect again. So going back to one of the first things that we talked about, about the record of, uh, and it, and it's not just religion. So talking mm-hmm. about Buddha, Jesus, but then he goes into Marx and even says Mark sucks. So you know that he's not, he, he's not an anarchist to put in a socialism, uh, you know, regime, but then he says that Maggie sucks. And then of course the, I believe in anarchy in the UK. That song's written by Pete Wright, the bassist. That's that's one of his ones. And he sings that uh, one too as well, right? He sings that one too. And 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 Securicore as well. That's that's one of Pete's. Yeah. I think the idea of sucked up, you know, again, it's horrible having to trying to speak for people because they might have a different thing. But <laughs> the way I heard it, it was it was really just an attack on everything. Um and saying that, you know, all of these things are are, are things that keep us where we are in a funny sort of way you know i mean that they're, they're part of the they're part of the boundaries or the parameters or whatever you want to call it of this of this world that we live in you know what i mean all of those things are part of the stuff controlling us yeah so if we if we can live outside of all of those things then we might have half a chance you know what i mean i think that's really what it's about because i think in, in a funny sort of way i mean I think Pete was the one in the band who who was the most socially, as in socialism, minded out of all of them. I don't think um, I think you know most of the others were much more in a in a kind of a straightforward rejection of absolutely everything. Yeah. I think Pete was the only, might have been one of the only ones in the band, or possibly the only one in the band who even considered, you know, a, a sort of to have a a slight tinge of socialism in in their sort of uh, in their sort of ideas, you know what I mean? Yeah. Wayne, what about Secure Core? Uh, did you like that song? 
Yeah, it's that one. Uh, not only is he, you know, getting his point across, but it's it's musically one of the more um, I don't know if sophisticated is the word I would use, but they got that great buildup where just the bass comes in and then the drums start and then the, there's a that uh, guitar starts and then the chant starts and then it just then it just goes into this. Uh, just it's like I say, this is a great musically. This is one of the more um, complicated, if you will, the more uh, sophisticated songs. They really, everybody really uh, gets going. Like I say, I love this one, and like I say, I love the the big big finish at the end with the drums. And it's funny as well because a lot of um, those, you know, the way the album is, it was all recorded in one go, you know, so all the songs kind of segue into each other and they played them like that live as well. Um, and I think what's, again, from a musical point of view of, of the band itself, you know, there's all the different vocalists on the record um, and the fact that different people wrote the lyrics, you know, that m much more of a collective approach to it rather than it being a band with a songwriter um, really works for Crass. You know what I mean? It's like, to me, that was always a, a thing. I didn't have any ideas in my mind about, like, you know, collective blah, 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 or diverse blah, blah, blah back then. You just heard it as a record, you know what I mean? But... Now, you know, when I listen back to it, I think that it, it stands up so well because it's got that kind of collective thing, you know, and when you saw the band, they were trying to become, trying to be more anonymous the way they dressed and things like that. So they didn't look like there was a, a leader or even a lead vocalist because like four different people sang, you know what I mean? Um, and, and, and I think that's what's, you know, to me, that's a strength of, of the record as well, you know, and, and as them as a band, you know, just having that collective sort of idea and it comes across much stronger than everything that everyone's doing, you know. Pete's vocals are darker. Yes. I think. Yeah, I, I noticed that as well. Um, towards the end of the, the record, so there's a song called Angels, and, and the first time I listened, I, th I actually thought it was two songs. Cause there's kind of a little bit of an interruption of it uh, yeah, yeah. in the middle with uh, the broadcaster talking about Jim Call Callahan, Callaghan. Jim Callahan. He was the prime minister before Margaret Thatcher. I had to look that up again. <laughs> you can tell that I'm, I'm an American. <laughs> Drive 
been disastrous for Britain. I think, yes, Jim Callaghan is perhaps the more dangerous of the two because he is more successful I also had a look up uh, Coronation Street. So I guess well, I, that's, okay. that's uh, Britain's longest running soap opera. I guess it's been on the air since like the 60s. So Well, and, and also Angels was a soap opera set in a hospital. Oh, okay. And, and the Angels were nurses. Gotcha. Lost in, lost in the midst of time, that one, I'm afraid. Um, but yeah, so the the I think the idea about that with that song again, it, it's like a kind of a, a a simple sort of message of of television being the focus, and I always thought of it as it's either being like the the idea that not just television pumps out you know propaganda or whatever, but it's the idea that you know soap operas and war in Northern Ireland are all the same thing. They're just they're just either entertainment or they're just stuff for the public to consume. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think it was the idea that there wasn't much difference to the, you know, the average person sat in their living room eating their dinner in front of the TV, war in Northern Ireland or a soap opera were basically the same thing. I think that's kind of really what it's having a go at, you know, reducing, you know, important sort of world events, tri- television trivialising stuff and normalising death and yeah. destruction and genocide or whatever, you know what I mean? Wayne, anything on this one? I like the way they mix the the television or the broadcast uh, excerpts with it because like I say, I do think, like he said, it's, it's showing you that the media, it, it's it's uh, numbing you like it, like just like he said it they are now the same place that you find out about the the facts of the world are the same place where you watch the 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 you know the the mind numbing you know soap opera and when you do that you're going to they're all going to mix together and they're going to get watered down and to where this the war in northern ireland is in your mind going to be comparative to coronation street or these this show about, you know, or Kojak or whatever that the, 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 but mixing the, the broadcast uh, in with it uh, gave it really gave it a, a, a cool and ominous effect to like, this is what, this is what's happening. And you're not, you're, you don't even. And, 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 and another thing that's interesting about that is I've just thought of it while, while you were talking is um, that if you look at, that concept and you apply that to today and i i would say that you're getting the information of uh of both those two things you know the soap opera and the war in northern ireland or whatever it's now you're getting those uh i can't remember your exact phrases you had a good phrase for it there but it was like you're getting your information for it you know think of them being uh, conflated together you know uh, a squirrel on a skateboard and your supposed facts about <laughs> you know uh, anything to do in politics and which are inevitably be some kind of weird conspiracy theory about you know 
the coronavirus is one big hoax and and a, and a squirrel on a skateboard. But the funniest thing about that is, you know, and that's how people get their facts today. But the funniest thing about it is, is that in those days, Coronation Street being mixed in with the war in Northern Ireland was done by, to all intents and purposes, the state, you know, because the television was seen as being in those days an arm of the state, you know. And today we're doing it to ourselves because we're doing it on the internet. Anybody can go on the internet and, and say anything they like. I'm not suggesting you shouldn't be able to, but just lunatic um, notions, you know, uh, can be put up on the internet. You can say anything you want. You can say any theory you want about anything. And it's next to, uh, you know, a cat on a skateboard. And it seems to me to be about the same stuff, except the weirdest thing is it's, it's us that's supplying the content <laughs> not and not the state or any of the various arms of the state anymore. It's bizarre, you know. We seem to have a – we seem to want it to happen. <laughs> <laughs> so, so how about next song, which is uh, What a Shame? This is a quick song. Again, uh, yeah. it's about a minute long, and I'm and I'm maybe you you can shed a little light because I I feel like are they implying that they're the quiet ones in the back? Oh God, because no, I, I haven't read to this one for a while. Oh, okay. uh, what's the first line of the song? Because you know I'll be out of singing the whole song after well, the says, first line. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the one verse is "Watch out for the quiet ones at the." at the back all they want is the smallest crack everything's happening down the front innocent bystander you're the biggest runt and mm. and so i'm i'm wondering are are they referring that they're the quiet ones or do we need to i have always been baffled by that lyric i don't actually know what that one means wayne you got any like, interpretations for that i thought it was i guess i looked at it more as they're the the kids who are following them you know, as or may seem like the outcasts or the or the kids at the back of the room, but but watch out because once they hear this and and we can inspire them, then they're gonna they'll they'll be a force to be reckoned okay. with. It's not that I don't think I could decipher it. I don't. I think there's too many ways of deciphering that one, and that's why I probably don't have a fixed <laughs> opinion about that lyric. It's, it has always baffled me that lyric. Yeah. In that at that level, you know what I mean. And then the the song after that is "So What," and this one's a pretty heavy song with all the lyrics. Like I think that they attack, like all the things that we talked about that they're they're calling out. I think it's all here. Like we're calling out religion, we're calling out government, we're calling out society, um, and yeah, I think. I think, and I think that it's it's captured perfectly 
when the other guys in the band are shouting, you're, you're part of the machine, yeah, the which is part. like, that, that's like my favorite part of the song. Yeah. He's a very, that I love that bit as well. And I have to say that, you know, whenever I play that record and it gets to that line is it just feels so good when they all join in with that bit. And, it, and I get the same feeling when I was a, a young kid, you just felt like whatever mixed up ideas you had in your head, you know what I mean about, you know, it would be simple stuff when you're young, you know, you, you're looking at your old man sat in an armchair, he's watching the horse racing on the telly and, you just think, oh God, you know what I mean? Please don't let me do that for the rest of my life, you know. Because you're in, you're a young guy, you know. You're into dressing up, and you wear funny clothes, and you want to be in a band, and all this kind of st- stupid, you know, sort of stuff, which is your life when you're young. And you just look at someone from the other generation, and you just think, oh, I don't want to bloody do that. It looks boring, you know. That's what I mean about it being. Yeah, it's in a much more libertarian sense because you're looking at it just from purely within the framework. And you were the and that bit where it goes, I know you're not you're a part of the machine was always a really strong bit for me because it made me feel like, you know, definitely that you didn't feel like you would be the only person to think like that. Do you know what I mean? It really gave you that sense of like, no, there's loads of people. It's something about them the way those voices are, you know, and the toughness of it, you know what I mean? Yeah. And um and and the song itself, so what I think that's one of Steve's, and I think Penn said to me, and he's probably said it in interviews as well, that when Steve said he wanted to form a band and Penn said, oh, you know, I'll do it with you, and Penn had written uh, Christ's Reality Asylum, and it's a really long piece. And Steve said, oh, you know, I've written some lyrics, and he came in, and So What was was one of the lyrics. And Penn said he read it, and it, it blew his mind because he said basically that the lyric for that song has kind of encapsulated into a, a kind of a, a song lyric what I'd been trying to say with um, with Christ Reality Asylum. So then he quickly, but I don't think he quickly, but I think he had the idea then to 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 kind of edit down Christ Reality Asylum into the track that became Asylum. But then you know that was a big. I think it was a, a moment. Uh, might have been like a pivotal moment in their very, very early inception when it was just the two of them, of of how to do things as crass. You know, what I mean, rather than it to be in a, a kind of Sham sixty nine type punk group. You know what I mean? Yeah. But when you formed a band in England, you was either Genesis, four guys that all went to a posh public school, or you were, you know, 
four guys that came off the same council estate, you know, the same lived in the same projects as it would be over here. You know what I mean? There was never really much mingling of the of the two. So for me, when I found out that not only was some members of Crass not teenagers, that they weren't even working class. It was sort of mind-blowing to me. You know, it wasn't like I, I, I didn't like immediately start going, oh, why is there some, why is there some poshos in the band? Or who's let these <laughs> old gits in the band or something? It, by the time the record even came out and I'd met Penny Rimbaud and G and I'd seen them play live, it was mind-blowing to me that Penny Rimbaud was older than my dad because my dad seemed like a, even though my dad was about 32 or something at the time, 35 or he might have been my dad at the time, he seemed so old and people from the older generation did seem a lot older. So Penny Rimbaud, it, it sort of blew my mind. There was a bloke older than my dad in the band, but that he was sort of posh as well, seemed even stranger. and. I think that's what really made Crass at the beginning work out great because you had Steve, the working class guy, and writing his lyrics the way he did. And then you had Penn, the sort of older, you know, posher guy. He'll laugh when I say that. But, but you know, and, and he had the kind of the more articulate way of, of, of sort of doing things, you know what I mean? And he had the experience as well. He'd already done sort of music and he'd, into art school and things like that, you know, a lot more worldly experience. So the combination of both of them is what gave it that sort of breadth, I suppose. So what in the in the way that it was presented as a song, you know, by Crass with all of the people in the band and what their input into the music was and all that, it definitely, is, uh, definitely made it bigger than the sum of its parts, I think is probably how I'd describe it. Yeah. Massive, massive, it's a massive song on the record as well. It's a big, big, you know, it may be the focal point of the record, even though Today I Was a Living is the one everyone kind of knows and remembers. I, I think So What may be the the big the big song, I think, is the phrase we'd probably use on records, don't we? Yeah. You know, it's like the, the big song on the record, you know. Well, the fact that they, so for the last song is called Well, Do They? <laughs> And and it's pretty much a refrain of the chorus of "Do they owe us a living?" Are, are you guys okay with them kind of doing the refrain and and because it sounds very much like the 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 second song, the second track. You know what it ended up what it exactly reminded me of, and I'm sure that they would they would throw up if I if they heard me say this, but Sergeant Pepper, like they end they yeah, the reprise oh. at the end because it's the same song but just. And it's not even terribly different, but I, it definitely brings everything back around and it kind of ties it all together. That's interesting that you say that because I'd never drawn that parallel before. But the first thing is, it is actually the same song, just slightly faster and more ramshackle because yeah. they've just played the whole of the rest of the album in one huge go, you know what I mean? Because they played, recorded the whole album live. There's no overdubs. There's no breaks during the recording. And they did it just like a like a performance at a gig. But they used to always start and end the set with that as well. They used to that's when they used to play shows. They used to start the show and end the show with that one. But the Sergeant Pepper thing's interesting because Penn, Penny is a massive Beatle fan. 
don't know. I don't know how often he referenced them in in Crass throughout the career of Crass. I can definitely think of half a dozen times on later Crass records when I hear a thing where I go, "That that's the Beatles," um, but I don't think it was. Uh, done in a way where they uh, were trying to lift music. It's just like little ideas like that, putting a, a re- reprise of something in at the end of a of a record or whatever, you know what I mean? Yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, I think it works well, and uh, I think it's a good device as well, you know. You've got like a – it's a message record as well, you know, and I think that The Day I Was A Living was, was kind of seen as being the, the – for want of a better phrase, like the, the kind of populist song on there, the one that was you, that, that anybody who was into vaguely into punk would get it if you were the hours of living. So I think it's kind of a probably a good idea to end the album on that as well. You go, oh that, right, that was that one at the beginning. That was that's all right. That song, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and I and I think that there there are still yeah, some lyrics in here that I feel like are relevant today. Where um, towards the end of the song, he says, don't take any notice of what the public thinks so much on the TV. Just don't want to think. It still feels relevant 40 years after the song was recorded. So, yeah, I mean, it's weird, isn't it? Because there's a, you know, when you're sort of just discovering politics and things like that, you know, you sort of had this idea of like, you know, that television, yeah, yeah, they just use it as a tool to control us all and stuff like that, which undoubtedly is a, is a huge factor. The concept of television is more of the, control thing than the content i always think now yeah. you know yeah but then i look at the internet and think there must be some latent thing inside us all that we we want to be controlled because we're doing it to ourselves the internet is out there and anybody can do what they want on it and yet all we want to do is the most mundane dumbest stuff <laughs> no you know i mean no, I absolutely – I'm laughing because I absolutely agree with you. We – it. I think to your point uh, and to their point is we're, we're – we have all this control and yet we – I guess at the heart of it, we are sheep and we just want to be told what to do. When Because when we're given the ability to do whatever we want, we do the most stupidest shit. <laughs> and, I mean, it's not because I don't think that, that we – could you know remove all of these you know things and have a better life? I don't think that that's that we couldn't do that because we we're, we're sheep or we we've got this sort of innate thing where we want to be controlled. But maybe it's I don't know. Maybe I need to you know have a look more into like the uh, genetic imperative <laughs> and see if I can come up with an evolutionary reason why we why we we've got a a desire to want to be controlled because there's something about the internet, the way it's evolved over the last 20 years, you know, to younger people, they, they won't see it the, the same way as, you know, older, older people see it. But, 
You say, Jesus Christ, you know, when we were actually being what we thought were was being controlled by soap operas on a TV that only pumped out four channels, and then one day someone invented this thing. It's like, yeah, it's kind of like a TV, but you can do what you want on it. We then decided to not even bother making soap operas. We just film a cat on a skateboard <laughs> and show that right. when we're – you know, when we conceivably can do anything we want, you know, it's like, and then not only do people film the cat on a skateboard and post that, that, so that's now the content, but people flock to it in droves to consume it. So it's what, I don't know what that tells you. <laughs> the government, you know, if there was such a thing as a, as a mysterious cabal of people controlling the planet who really did, uh, pull the puppet strings of us all and say, you know, keep the pub, keep the population controlled with television. They're sitting there now in this weird cloud that they look at, at us all from, and they're going, we don't even have to do anything. They're doing it to themselves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's bizarre, isn't it? So, so any last thoughts on feeding the 5,000? It, it not only is it, it it's a record that I like the music and it brings back lots of you know great sort of feelings of the first time I because I can actually put the record on and transport my mind back to to Christmas nineteen seventy eight and just the the tone of the guitar tone and the drum sound and everything it just takes me back there if I close my eyes but one of the things I like about the record from the, the content you know the lyrical content and the the feeling of it you know and those those kind of feelings that we were talking about of, of, you know, when the, no, you're not, you're a part of the machine and, you know, and all those kind of things on there that kind of feel, they give you a sort of little sense of a tiny little sense of power and things like that. And the lyrics, you know, general Bacardi and the reject of society and end result and all those things all through my life, since that record came out, I've always, you know, uh, you know, I'm not one of these people who, you know, I didn't grow dreadlocks and walk around in trousers with holes in them all my life. You know what I mean? I've sort of gone off, done things and, you know, joined bands and done this. I've had kids, you know, I've got grandchildren, I've moved around the world, you know, all everything, you know, life has just happened over the 40 years intervening. But the one thing about that record, it's the one record that wherever I am in life, if some if things aren't going too good or I've hit a bit of a, a spot in my life, and I, I don't do it intentionally, it's not like I use it for psychotherapy or anything like that, but if I, for instance, I've been in bands before where I've not been too happy with with not just the, the, the band or whatever, or I don't mean in a personal sense, but just musically, I feel like, you know, Am I am I doing this for the right reasons, or you know, am I, is this what I should be doing with my life? Feeding the Five Thousand is the kind of record that I put it on, and it in it just completely I don't know in the modern sense of the word, it sort of resets me. It's a record I can go back to and go. Now I've now I can see everything clearly. I can see that I'm doing this wrong, and you know. I've just been letting myself down by doing this and I haven't been true to myself to do this. I've drifted away from who I should be and, and you know what I mean, and things like that. And it's a record that I can put it on 
and it can make me, it can rein me in. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like if I if I feel like I'm sort of drifting apart away from the the sort of person I want to be. You know what I mean? I know it sounds pretentious and you know and all that kind of stuff, but it's a kind of record that it's like that. It, it's a record I can listen to it and it can make me go. You know, it, it just kind of gives me a sense of like. It lets me see myself from outside, and if I'm actually doing, you know, where I want to be, you know, or being the person I want to be, you know, what I mean, yeah. how far away have I have I gone? And I think all the people in the band as well have never let themselves be drawn into other things, not just the concept of them selling out, but you know, they've all they've always lived by the same. Um, you know, sort of kind of beliefs or whatever, you know what I mean? Irrespective of whatever they've done, most of them have, have not really done music outside of Crass since the band split up. But I could almost bet a pound to a penny that whenever I speak to someone, ask them what they're doing, they're always doing something interesting and <laughs> and sort of, you know, not not new, but, but something that's always on the, you know, on the edges of like what's the new technology or new sort of ideas or innovations you know it might be like you know building eco-friendly houses or you know what i mean doing some interesting new music it could be like different stuff do you know what i mean yeah. but whenever i hear about what the band the band members are doing is it's all it's never like someone goes oh he's just got a regular job he gave all that shit up yeah <laughs> now that, that's never happened in the 40 years and you know and luckily enough as well you know i've had a maintained a good relationship and a, a friendship with um you know a few members of the band uh, over the the go. 40 years you know and my but my first band i should add at this point um my first band lack of knowledge which was just four oiks from a council estate i might add who sort of bumbling around trying to kind of come up with a coherent way of saying what we wanted to say and all that we were on one of my visits to Dial House. We made our own record, which, you know, we printed at a record pressing plant and we had the sleeves made by the local printing guy and that we had no money. You know, we collected all the records from the pressing plant on the on the bus, <laughs> the public transport. We took a copy to Dial House and um, Penny took it out the back and played it, disappeared for, for five minutes and came back and he said, I really like it. Do you want to make a record on our label? So then after that, a relationship developed where we made a record on Crass's label. They, they'd had a label where they put out records by, by bands that they liked and like-minded people. And Christmas just gone, um, I was in Abbey Road, actually, with Penny. We remastered it, and it's going to be coming out. It was meant to be coming out this month, funnily enough. All right. Um, and uh, Bjork's... Uh, manager slash label Derek Burkett runs a label called One Little Indian Records, which is Bjork's label. And Derek Burkett used to be the bass player of um, a band called Flux of Pink Indians, who were also on the Crass's label. And he runs the One Little Indian label, who Bjork is on. And Bjork used to be in a band on the Crass label as well, which is how they are hooked up. And go. now. One Little Indian Records has taken over the entire Crass back catalogue. And so they got in touch and said, would you be interested in having 
your lack of knowledge record remastered and re-released uh, on one little Indian records to which we said, yeah, sure. Great. Um, so it's a, again, these spiders web or whatever you want to call it is all interwoven, you know what I mean? Between me sat in New York on my own running my little studio just for my own enjoyment, you know, Penny's still in Dial House with G. They're doing amazing stuff. You know, G's got uh, doing uh, art and stuff, and Penn's doing his music. And they've got Derek Burkitt's running One Little Indian, and Bjork is being Bjork, you know. And at one time, all of us were on Crass's label. Very cool. In fact, when I joined the Buzzcocks in 1992, come full circle now, Joined the Buzz in 1992. I was working for Southern Studios, which was the studio where Feeding of the 5000 was recorded. And the bass player of Crass, Pete Wright, was uh, was working there as well. So I used to used to see him, you know, sort of once a week. We'd bump into each other in the warehouse and stuff like that. And that was the kind of last time I, I saw him. Uh, so... I think he had a record out a little while ago, but yeah, you know, people are still doing stuff and everyone's still out there. There you go. Crafty's catalogue has just all been remastered at Abbey Road and that's all out now. And now they're setting about some, uh, some of the, the lesser known stuff like my band, you know, so all right. my old band. So, so it's all good. So I was lying. I did have something to promote. You did. You did have something to promote. Absolutely. <laughs> I'd forgotten about that. I'd actually forgotten already that we'd done it. Now I, I, I was saying to someone, I, I, you know, I, I, I don't get asked to do stuff because I don't do anything. And then when I do get asked to do stuff, it's pointless because I haven't got anything to promote. Well, there you go. You do have something. There you go. You do have something to promote, yeah. didn't I? So, so we got uh, we got connected by Mighty Joe Vincent, who was on one of our earlier mm-hmm. episodes. We always ask our guests, so who do you know that I don't know who'd want to join our podcast to talk about one of their favorite records, like you just did? I should recommend Steve Ignorant, really, shouldn't I? If if you can hook us up with that, that'd be awesome. He's kind of, you know, he's got an Instagram account now. He's got his new band. I say new, they've been going two or three years now. And, you know, and they're doing really well. And he's out doing stuff and playing gigs. And, you know, he'd probably be a great, he'd probably be a great person to talk to because I'm sure a lot of, a lot of traffic that's going to come this way because they're going to see crass feeding the 5,000. They're not going to care that it's me talking about it, <laughs> but they'll probably be interesting to, no, I mean, I'm being serious. It, there'll be a lot of people because it's not a record that gets talked about that much. Yeah. And there's a lot of people on planet earth who are into music because of the internet. It's, it's, it's a record now that's so widely known and it's very rarely mentioned. So I think what's going to happen is a lot of traffic's going to come to, to this from those people who are going to pick up on the idea that, oh, someone's talking about Fear 5000. No one does that. So I think consequently now those people that are in a crass that come here, if you was to have someone like Steve Ignorant, you know, they'd be back for it. You know what I mean? There we go. So, there we go. I mean, that's why my little marketing man brain working now. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll, we'll, we'll chat. All right, let's wrap mm. this. Let's wrap this up. So thanks for listening. Please go support the arts. 
this is where I usually say go to a live show, but stay indoors and go check out one of the live broadcasts from your favorite musicians and donate Venmo, PayPal, whatever you need to do to make sure that your, your favorite musicians stay afloat during this time. Buy a t-shirt of the band, buy a record. We are records revisited and we are out. out. I'll beat you to it. There you go. <laughs> <laughs>